You are listening to People in the Know, a podcast series that allows me, Ken Root, to speak with some remarkable people that I have met in my career and personal life. Today, prepare to be inspired by a man who started at the margins of Midwest society and progressed through life to attain status and recognition at the highest level. Jim Ross Lightfoot is a former farm broadcaster at KMA in Western Iowa. He went by the name of Jim Ross at the time. I did not know he had another name. And a former member of Congress from Iowa after that. Now, may I say that going from farm broadcaster to congressman is a lot bigger step than going from the real world to being a farm broadcaster. It's a lot harder than the other one. People in the Know is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. We're committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. When Jim was at KMA in Shenandoah, his boss said Jim could talk about a pencil for 10 minutes and make it interesting. Well, he did a lot more than that. He took his God-given talents and he served God through his life. And he's written a memoir of his life that was just published. We'll tell you how to get a copy of it, but not all of what's in it. Jim Roth Lightfoot, hello, and welcome to this podcast. Good morning, Ken. I uh, used to be doing the weather about this time of day, and I've been scrambling around here to see if I could find a weather forecast, but you know, those days are gone. <laughs> so everybody now gets it on their, on their, uh, telephone or on their computer. Yeah. And it, it's not much more accurate than it used to be either. Well, that is one of the problems. And I've discussed that with a couple of meteorologists. A few of them say that the, uh, national weather service needs to have a review board that they come in front of. But I always said that <laughs> meteorologists, you know, if, when they made a weather forecast that was wrong, you just kill the one that did it. And, and pretty <laughs> soon you're not going to have a problem with them making wrong forecasts, but it doesn't seem to work very well. No, and, no. <laughs> one of those things is great in theory, but not in practice. <laughs> Jim, where are you right now, uh, physically? And, uh, what have you been doing? How did you ever manage to get it all together to write this book. Uh, well, I'll start with the first part, Ken. I'm living in a little town of White Oak, Texas. It's uh, about 30 miles north of Tyler. If people are familiar with East Texas, I-20 runs from Dallas to Shreveport. We're about 115 miles east of Dallas. And, oh, I don't know. It's a 50-minute run into Shreveport from here. We're close enough to the border that we have to speak Cajun every once in a while. But uh, we're over here in what's called the Piney Woods. And the reason we're here is I married a lady from Corsicana, Texas, which is about 100 miles up the road. Uh, when I was in Corsicana, managing and operating a manufacturing plant for the old farm master company. You probably remember them. Uh, they got connected with Balin Manufacturing out in Columbus, Nebraska. And, of course, we made gates and squeeze chutes and so on. And the West Corporation bought them out in 1976. And it wasn't the same company. So 
I took my new bride and went back to Iowa. And one day she says, you know, she said, I spent 27 years with you in Iowa. It's time for you to spend 27 years in Texas. So here we are. If, if I live it out, Ken, I'll be 106. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But uh, the best part about down here, there's no snow to scoop. Yeah. Uh, other than, you know, taxes are low. Uh, and of course, right now the governor's, uh, uh, we're fighting a flood of people coming across their border, but I won't get off on the politics, but. Well, I'm in Florida and, uh, I'm living in the villages, which also does not have snow, but other than, um, the problems with STDs, uh, for a retirement village, this is really a great place. Um, I wanted to ask you to go back though. I said you were born at the margin of society that deserves explanation. Yeah. Uh, I took my first breath of air and the Florence Crittenden home for unwed mothers in Sioux city, Iowa, way back in 1938 and, uh, was then moved down to what at that time was called a Christian home in Council Bluffs, which it's called Children's Square today. And then my mom and dad adopted me out of uh, of uh, the Christian home. And I started my life on a farm in southwest Iowa. Had a name change, too. I was, my name was Roger Blair when I was born. And when uh, the folks changed my name to Jim Ross Lightfoot, things happened. And, um, like so many people that were raised on a farm, particularly in that time period, Ken, I don't think there was a better time in the world. I mean, we, we learned so much. Our teachers were interested in us and our futures. Uh, there was right and wrong and there were consequences if you made the wrong decision. And if you got in trouble at school, it was mom and dad and the principal against you, not a bunch of lawyers against the principal in the school, like it seems to be today. So it was a wonderful time to grow up. It was a great time to learn. 4-H and FFA played a huge role in my life. Uh, I learned so much from it. And I still find myself doing things today. And I think, hmm, that's something I learned when I was in 4-H, you know. Yeah. So that's, that's the margins I started from. Uh, I had some wonderful parents that, uh, that pointed me the right direction and <laughs> they, they did know the difference between right and wrong and there were consequences and, uh, it paid off, you know, I, I stayed out of jail and here I am. Did but, you? Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I, well, the first job I had after I got out of the army, which I joined just as soon as, uh, I left, see, we graduated on a Monday, and I think Wednesday I was in Fort Leonard Wood at basic training. And uh, when I finished with the Army, uh, I went to work for IBM and was what they called a customer engineer. And this was back in the days when computers were vacuum tubes, and mm -hmm. the transistor had just been invented, which started to revolutionize the entire computer business. And uh, today... You have as much computing power. In fact, you have a whole lot more in your wristwatch than Mutual of Omaha used to have on the entire sixth floor, which we had full of IBM equipment and 35 tons of air conditioning on it. And all it would do was put out the monthly billing. 
And that's how much it's advanced uh, in technology-wise since then. So I grew up through all of that, and as you did, a lot of it. And it was, I don't know. I don't think there had been a better time to to grow up than the, than the years that uh, that I did. Could I ask and, you something personal? Sure. Did you find your mother again in life? Yeah, I did, Ken. We uh, our oldest daughter had a, I don't know, was a disease or a, an illness that we couldn't find a route to. And uh, we checked everywhere. And, of course, uh, my wife could check back on her family tree, but I didn't know anything about mine. So we started to look, and I'll make a Reader's Digest version out of this story because we can talk about this one for hours. But I found that. There was a lady in Onawa, Iowa, who was my half-sister, and she and I got to be extremely close. And uh, her mother had been asked about if she had had a child uh, before she got married, and she insisted, no, it was her sister. And then one day, I guess she had missed, uh, admitted it to, to Judy, who was my half-sister living in, in Ottawa. And over the year, I got to meet her. Uh, we got to be good friends. In fact, I have uh, a thing sitting right here in front of me on my desk uh, that she sent me one year for Christmas, and her picture sitting right here beside it. And she was a wonderful lady. Just, you know, life didn't go too good for her. And she had some some tough times and uh, uh, Judy and I, as I say, we were extremely close. And the first time I met her, I was in Washington DC and I got a phone call that Judy had had cancer and was dying and she wanted to see me. And so I dropped everything and flew commercial back to Omaha, drove home, then got a little airplane and flew up to uh, Sioux city and walked in and Judy was in, in her, her bed and all bloated up and tubes and all this sort of thing. And she had a thing down her throat so she couldn't talk. So we worked out a little system that two squeezes of the hand was yes and one squeeze was no. And, of course, I had to make up the questions and the answers so she could uh, respond. And and I don't know. In all of that, I lost track and and my wife had left the room, and it was just the two of us. And she was making a noise that I couldn't understand what she was trying to tell me. And all of a sudden, this soft voice says, I think she's trying to tell you that she loves you. And I looked up, and that was the first time that I met my birth mother. She'd come into the room. And that's how we met. And I still have trouble telling that story today. But... Uh, she was a wonderful lady, and then we, we we flew home about, I don't know, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, I guess. We left the hospital and flew back down to Shenandoah, and uh, about 6.30, the telephone rang, and it was Helen, my mother, my birth mother, and uh, she said, well, Judy, Judy passed away, she said, shortly after you left, and she said, she just stayed alive long enough to see you. Oh, my. And that's, that's kind of where 
yeah. where I caught up and it, uh, this, they were wonderful people, you know, it's just, they had, things just didn't go right for them. And, uh, uh, I was the result of some of it, I guess. Maybe that's why I've been so dang ornery for all my life, but, um, Jim, let me jump into your book in an area that we parallel. Uh, okay. we, we were both reporters and yes, sir. In 1981, I was in Kansas, uh, the newly started Kansas ag network. And my uh, boss was rich Hull, who, you know, and actually one time was the general manager of KMA radio. Correct. And rich, uh, contacted the office of, uh, the secretary of agriculture who had just been appointed John block and asked if they were going to travel. Uh, because that was at the time Block was a marathon runner. He was a go-go guy from Illinois. He was oh. to expand exports, and Ronald Reagan had appointed him to that job. You paralleled with Ronald Reagan in 1982, but I began with Block in 1981. And the trip that I took with him to begin with as a reporter and paid my $6,000 to go uh, which was a scrape up to say the least you point out your story in your book, yeah. but, uh, we went into Korea and into the demilitarized zone, the DMZ between North and South Korea. Um, then we went on to Japan and from Japan, we went to China, your trip, as I recall, in 82 with Reagan went to South Korea and to the DMZ and to Japan. Is that right? Uh, flip that. We went to Japan first. Okay. But you were and in those countries. We were, yeah. We were supposed to go to the Philippines, but that got canceled because there was something going on, some unrest and the secret service says, no, that's too dangerous. We're not going to go there. Mm -hmm. And that, that got canceled out right at the start. Right. Uh, I wanted to make a point here that when you're a reporter and you're given the opportunity to go and to see firsthand. That to me is the most sacred part of what you're doing for your audience. And when I went into Korea and the DMZ, and perhaps you could parallel with me on this of your experience, we were taken in school buses down dirt and gravel roads into Panmunjong, where they had the talks for years that never really finalized that war, but only gave them a ceasefire. And then we got to see the North Koreans on the other side, the little building they had built. We talked about the ax murders that had occurred a few years earlier. And, uh, we considered it a fairly spooky place. How did you look at it? Pretty much the same. Um, it, uh, was desolate, but yet it was dangerous and you had the feeling that our troops and the South Korean troops were on trigger edge all the time that we were there. We, uh, we went in little vans instead of buses and they took us in first. And then, uh, we heard the crunch of the gravel when president Reagan came in and the beast, which is what they call that armored Cadillac that, uh, that they use for the president. Uh, and one of the things Ken that, that I saw there that is still existing in 
Korea today. I have a son now living in Seoul, South Korea. They had a draft like we used to have, except it was mandatory for everybody. You had to serve two years in the military. And I believe they still have the two-year term. But these young men, they knew what patriotism was like I have never seen. And my sense was that as they stood there staring at the North and our soldiers standing there beside them, they were on a situation that I really don't know how to describe it. They were on trigger edge, but yet they were calm. Mm. Uh, They knew why they were there, but boy, were they ever ready to go to work if something went wrong. And uh, that was my impression of it. Uh, Reagan spoke and we had, uh, armored personnel carriers around him with guys sitting on top with 50 caliber machine guns that were loaded. And, uh, you know, you don't go to too many speeches where uh, you're surrounded by, by machine guns. But, uh, uh, that was shortly after the ax murders that you had talked about. And Reagan really went after the North Koreans about that situation and that it should never, ever happen again. And, uh, it was it was emotional, uh, along with being you're just trying to take so much in uh, because there was so much going on. Well, there's a twist to this in my experience, and that is, I was talking to this colonel in the, who was basically in charge of our bus, a black gentleman, and uh, he was talking about the winters. And I had a brother who served in Korea, and I said my brother said it was bitterly cold here in the winter. We were there in October. And he said, oh, yeah, I said, that Siberian Express comes through. And he said, we have out of about 45 days. It'll get 20 below zero. He said, it is bitterly, bitterly cold. And I saw as we get out of there, you know, I'm kind of pumping in for information all the time and taking everything in. And I said, this is such a a scary, secretive thing here. How many people a year do you guys bring in here? And he said, about 50,000. Yeah. And the light went on with me that the military tends to want to get you to go back home and report things that make them look good. I don't, you know, we haven't solved that problem to this day, but we still have a huge military presence. Um, and I reported that, you know, this was, this was a tourist attraction in its own way. And it had a twist that the military really wanted it to be a scary experience for you. And I saw that in El Salvador when I was traveling with Block there. I saw it in Iraq when I was traveling with Johans there. And in the Soviet Union, of course, the U.S. Embassy was guarded on the outside with the Soviets and all the Americans had to stay inside. So I don't distrust the military or the government, but I do think it is good that those of us who are reporters get a chance to firsthand tell the story of what we saw. Oh, I totally agree with you. One of the things, my thought came to mind as you were speaking. Um, I was, it was cold when we were there. And being an old farm boy, I found a nice warm spot on the south side of a building out of the wind and the sunshine. And uh, the door of this bunker came open. And I spoke to the soldier that came out and turned out he was from Kansas City. And so we had kind of a nice chat. And he took me inside the bunker 
And boy, the stuff that they had in there, the ground radar, uh, we watched a fox that was playing uh, in the DMZ, probably a mile from where we were. I never saw uh, it. And one of the, yeah, on their ground radar. And uh, they had a big problem then. There were, I believe there were two tunnels that the North Koreans had made under the DMZ, and one they had uh, completed and the other one they hadn't. So they had all kinds of sensors in the ground listening for noises of digging and that sort of thing. But you're right. Uh, it was a scary place. And uh, uh, Reagan, made when he made his speech, he said a phrase that really kind of started me getting into politics. And he said, uh, gentlemen, he said this morning, we stand on the edge of freedom. And boy, that just hit me like a bolt of electricity because we were, that's what was going on. And uh, the guy from Kansas City, the soldier, he said, oh yeah, he said, sometimes at night, he said, they'll scream at us on their loudspeakers, you know, we had rice for, for dinner. And he says, the South Koreans, they'll get back on our speaker and holler back at him said, yeah, but we had white rice. Because all the North Koreans had is that old inferior brown rice, but yes, there was there was fear there. It wasn't, but there, and it, but it, there it, was comfort, you know, and and that the military was there. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it's it, they didn't solve it. Reagan didn't. Nope. Mr. Kim tear down this wall. Uh, they never got it solved, and it's still a major uh, blister uh, that could burst in the world that could get really really ugly. Uh, but diplomacy continues and hope continues. Let me jump to something I think is somewhat humorous. And first of all, I'm talking with Jim Ross Lightfoot, who has just published a book called Climbing Mountains with God. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've heard there's a link between hearing loss and dementia. Could you tell me more about the correlation? That is a great question, Ken, and it's one that, um, you know, has been out there for quite a few years. Johns Hopkins uh, was the first one that, uh, Dr. Frank Lynn, that kind of made the correlation. We always knew there was something going on with, you know, hearing loss, the brain, and things just weren't, weren't, you know, adding up. And his research now, he's been doing his research for about over 40 years. What he found is that individuals with an untreated hearing loss, even mild, you are two to five times more likely to develop dementia. And, you know, most people will say, well, why is that? And it's, it's, you know, when you understand how hearing works, it starts to become simple from the standpoint of just understanding it. So our ears conduct sound. And then the sound then gets carried from the middle ear to the cochlea where the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs in the cochlea that now move back and forth that send the signal up to the brain where the brain processes that information. And when you have a untreated hearing loss, what happens is those hairs in the cochlea will either get broken, um, bent, or just not move like they used to. Well, what happens then is they're not sending a full signal to the brain. You know, you've been in radio for, for many, many years. You'll understand this. So imagine, you know, back in the day, we were driving down the road, raining really hard or, you know, some kind of elements or we went underneath the bridge and the radio signal would go out. 
and you're listening to, you know, Paul Harvey at noon and you are, are not quite getting that whole Paul Harvey. And now you're trying to piece it together. You're sitting there, you're leaning forward. You're really trying to get it all to work out. That is your brain all day with an untreated hearing loss. It's trying to piece it together and it's working harder. Well, what it does is it pulls from two areas. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait to compensate for that, that gap because of an untreated hearing loss. The brain then has to work harder. It shrinks. And now we run into a cognitive issue because we've pulled from the cognitive area to help focus on hearing loss. That's where the, the connection now starts to come in. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Now let's return to my interview with Jim Ross Lightfoot. He's a former congressman from Iowa, a farm broadcaster before that, and he has just released a book about his life called Climbing Mountains with God. You can get it on Amazon if you would like. We're talking about his life and his experiences, and he went on to become a member of Congress, which we haven't gotten to as yet, and may have to do another podcast to do that. But it is such that he and I paralleled in the profession of farm broadcasting, but we weren't the first generation of reporters. The first generation of farm reporters who went to foreign sites happened during World War II. And mm -hmm. one of those was Herb Plambeck, who was a WHO in Des Moines, and oh, yeah. his rotation and went through and interviewed Iowa boys, and he was there at the end of the war. He saw a great deal of things. It was truly amazing. So jump forward in time. I am a farm broadcaster at WHO, and we are doing a tractor ride, WMT, WHO together. And I am standing there looking for a guest for the noon show. And this very elderly man was out in front of the historical society. And I went over and I said, sir, are you familiar with the historical society? He said, oh yeah, I've helped him for years and I've worked here. I said, would you be agreeable to talk with me on the big show? Yeah. So as we're prepping, getting ready to talk, he said, you know, um, I was to be interviewed by Herb Plambeck when I was a boy. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yes, I had a champion bowl at the state fair of Iowa. And Mr. Plambeck was to come over and interview me, but he couldn't make it. So he sent Ronald Reagan. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> well, I, I can I can see Herb doing that. Yeah. He was a well, legend. Just, just one more time. Wouldn't it be great if a farm broadcaster outranked the president of the United States? <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Jim, how can people get your book, Climbing Mountains with God? Uh two ways. If you just want the book, uh, you can go to Amazon.com and They'll have it to you in two or three days. If you'd like to have an autographed copy, uh, you can get it directly from me using either Venmo or Zelly. Most banks offer Zelly anymore. And then I will uh, autograph it for you, put what it, you know, you got something you want special, you want put in it. 
let me know. And then I'll ship the book back to you. Uh, my next shipment, I am told, is to arrive here in Texas the 27th of December. So it's going to be the first of the year before uh, you get the book back if you order that way. But uh, those are the two ways to order. And uh, I attempted to, or I talked to you, right? We corresponded. And I got the book in two days. So I have been pouring <laughs> over it. Uh, and it's delightful read. And, um, the young lady who, uh, worked yesterday with you for your, uh, basically news conference about it. Um, and you have done a fine job putting this together. And if anybody has any Midwest agricultural background, they're going to pick up the names of people that were a part of what your book is. So, um, I congratulate you on getting the book written and all the things that you have done quickly. Let me touch on you becoming a member of Congress. And if you would just tell me what it was like when you hit the real world of day-to-day -day congressional work. Well, there's <laughs> somewhere between an explosion and a car wreck. Uh, you walk into this whole new thing. And as you know, Ken, I I had no political experience other than you know I was president of 4-H club one time, and so it was all brand new. And to spend time, first of all, in our marvelous Capitol building, is something that I just can't explain it. Even you know, been in broadcasting. In fact, I got my certificate for 49 years from the NAFB yesterday in the mail. But to be in that hollow building, which, you know, the, the ghosts, I think, of presidents and congressmen and so on from the past walking around in there at night, uh, there, there's just a feeling there that, that's, that's unexplainable. And the work, I was taken under wing by two or three different members, uh, more senior members, who mentor, mentored uh, us through the process. And it's a complicated process to learn. Uh, writing a bill is, is not an easy deal, and very few of them ever get passed that, that are written. Uh, one of the things I guess that I've always been kind of proud of, but I never said much about it, as you know, in the mid eighties, uh, the economy was in the tank in the Midwest. Farmers were losing farms, banks were closing. Uh, I even had a couple of guys on my staff that spent all night with some farmers that were co contemplating a suicide. And yeah. I'm so proud of those guys for, for saving the lives that they did. And everything was, you know, in a tank as far as the Midwest was concerned and coming to the job from the perspective that you have and I have from being farm broadcasters, from working with farmers of all kinds, from working with different kinds of, of the farm organizations and so on, I had a pretty decent understanding of, of what the issues were and what some potential answers might be. And I wrote, that was my first bill. I wrote a bill to... Uh, uh, try and fix that. Well, the Democrats have been calling 
Congress since Eisenhower was president up until 1994, actually. And um, I was a junior Republican, <laughs> freshman Republican. And my chances of a bill passing were about like, you know, a snow cone lasting uh, all day long at the Iowa State Fair in August. It just it wasn't going to be. And I was told by some of the Iowa congressmen and some that weren't from Iowa, basically broke that bill up and I got every piece of it into the ag bill by going to different members and asking them if they would insert it and, uh, and it had to be Democrats because they were controlling the place. And, um, uh, I got every piece of that bill in there and we started to see a few changes happen. And that was my first real lesson, uh, at, at the legislative process. And, and the lesson was not the bill itself. The lesson was getting along with, with people. Just because you disagreed with someone because their opinion was opposite was absolutely no reason to hate them. Uh, in fact, you might want to go to lunch with them. They were pretty nice guys. And if you would sit down and talk about your ideas, many times, if you'd make agree not you know to disagree on certain things, many times you would pick ideas from both people uh, and put them together, and you came up with an idea that was better than either one of you had to start with. So that was that was my first lesson, Ken, in in legislation, and and again, it's it's like farm broadcasting. It's about people. Uh, you you trust people. Uh, you listen to what they have to say, and of course, I'll share with you one of my biggest pet peeves today are so-called reporters that continue to talk over whoever it is that they're interviewing won't let them finish answering a question because what they have to say is more important and you're good at it i've listened to you for a long time you ask a question you let your guest answer the doggone thing and move to the next question and i find that when I was doing it on a regular basis, many times that second and third question that I had prepared, I just threw them away because the first question's answer suggested the second question. And I learned all that in farm broadcasting. And it was a huge asset uh, being a member of Congress. I so there I go. One of those big long-winded answers talking about a pencil for 10 minutes, but uh... <laughs> Jim Ross Lightfoot, you can get his book, which is called climbing mountains with God. Uh, it is moving his ability to tell stories obviously speaks for itself and the career that he had going all the way to uh, time in Congress running for the U S Senate against Tom Harkin and the activities thereof is really worth it and inspiring. So, and I'd love to talk to you again, if you wouldn't mind about other experiences that you and I have paralleled with just to get your Iowa take as I had one from Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and, uh, other areas. So good luck to you have a good holiday season and we'll be in touch. And thanks a million. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you as well. And 
God does help us climb these mountains that we all face because that's life. And uh, I'm thankful for people like you and all the people I've met. And uh, Merry Christmas to all you listeners. My thanks to Jim Ross Lightfoot for being with me today for this podcast. We're going to talk to him again, I'm sure. I'm Ken Root. Have a great day.